Hello, 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 podsters. It's Amber, and uh, I'm here in the Jardin de Tuileries, the Tuileries Gardens. Um, and there's a big group of dogs next to me. There's some sort of dog walking event going on. Very cute. I'll take some pictures for you if you like. Um, I've come here today because this is where our next episode is going to take place. It is about the myth, the urban legend, the ghost story of the red man of the Tuileries. And I can tell you it is a grey, wet, miserable old day here in Paris. Good weather for ducks, as they say. But, um, pretty grim for people it's pretty quiet not that many tourists i think they're all doing their christmas shopping gosh they're having a right old bark aren't they so i'm going to get on i'm here to look for some pictures get some audio um and investigate whatever happens to that red man so enjoy the episode and do get in contact if you've got a story a ghost story or an urban legend you want to share with me Hello, and welcome back to Panam, a podcast that boldly goes through doors, even if they are marked no entry, to sneak a peek at Paris's history. Now, it's nearly Christmas, and if you have children, you may be battling with a little red man, the elf on the shelf, who comes out at night and gets up to mischief and apparently reports back to Santa if the children are being good or bad. He's a a sort of North Pole spy, I suppose. Um, And this episode, in a Christmassy sort of feel, is also about a red man, although a very different one. This is the legend that tells of the little red man that haunted the Tuileries Palace for over 300 years, between about 1570 when it was built to 1871 when it was burnt down by the Paris Commune. Now, he appeared only to the inhabitants of the palace, in other words, the kings, the queens, the emperors, and was a harbinger of doom or bad tidings. Like all legends, it's allegedly based on a real man and a real event, although men of short stature, dressed in red, do seem to crop up not only at the Tuileries and at Christmas. In Normandy, there is the so-called Nain Rouge, or Red Dwarf, nothing to do with a TV show, uh, who is sort of a house spirit or hobgoblin that appears and gets up to mischief. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, But apparently not content with staying in Normandy, he hitches a ride all the way to the USA, to Detroit, which was once a French settlement. This American creature is described as a small, childlike creature with red or black fur boots. He's also said to have blazing red eyes and rotten teeth. And like the Red Man of the Tuileries, he foretells woe and bad tidings, with each sighting being shortly followed by some sort of terrible event. So he gets around this Red Man, doesn't he? Um, But let us delve into the story of L'Homme Rouge, the Red Man, of the Tuileries and see what we can learn about him, his predictions and what it might all mean. Come with me. Here we are at the Louvre Museum in the first arrondissement. It was once a fortress, then a royal residence and today is the biggest art museum in the world. It's of course home to the Mona Lisa, works by da Vinci, uh, the Venus de Milo, I'm sure you've heard about the Louvre. Now you might know if you've already been here or seen a photo of the building that there are three wings that form a sort of U or horseshoe shape. But there did used to be a fourth building that would have made the, that would have made the Louvre into a rectangle and this was called the Tuileries Palace. It was built in 1564 by one of my favourite historical figures because she's sort of so 
complicated and wicked seeming, Catherine de' Medici, uh, following the death of her husband, Henry II. The building of the palace and the beginning of the legend go hand in hand, so let's look at how it all began. On the 30th of June, 1559, Henry II, King of France and husband of Catherine de Medici, was killed near what is now Place de Vosges during a jousting tournament. A long splinter from his opponent's lance pierced his eye and brain. <laughs> Death, unfortunately, was not instantaneous for him, and he died some ten days later in agony as the wound slowly festered and poisoned him. Catherine was heartbroken. And although their marriage had been a complicated one, she had always loved him. The same sadly could not be said of Henry. His heart had already been taken by the beautiful noblewoman Diane de Poitiers, who had once been his babysitter and was 14 years his senior. Throughout her marriage, Catherine had had to suffer the public humiliation of being second best to Diane. Not only this, but as queen, her one role was to provide children. But married at the tender age of 14, it was nearly 10 years before she was able to produce an heir. So worried was she about her failure, and afraid maybe of her fate if she continued to fail to do her duty, that she took drastic measures to remedy the problem, consulting doctors and fertility experts who gave her frankly bizarre advice such as to drink mule's urine which she did although under no account to go near the actual mule itself because that would be terrible if she went near the mule totally undo all the good work of drinking the urine when this proved unsuccessful not surprisingly she turned to alchemists who made her up a sort of fertility paste in which included such delightful ingredients as cow dung and ground-up stag's antlers. I'll let you imagine where she was told to smear this concoction. Needless to say, it didn't entice Henry. When this did not yield the desired result, she concluded that she must indeed be doing something very wrong. And even though it must have been terribly painful, she is said that she drilled a secret spy hole through the floor of her bedroom to watch the activities of her husband, the king, and his mistress, Diane, to see what they were doing, and thus what she was doing wrong. Finally, however, a sensible doctor was found, and he must have given them better advice, because in the end, Catherine would bear ten children to Henry, three of which would go on to be king. Just a side fact, and something to look out for if you go to the Louvre. As I mentioned, it used to be a royal palace. For this reason, you can see the insignia of various monarchs who lived and added to the building. L for Louis, F for Francois, etc, etc. Look out for the symbol of Henry II. It's the capital H for Henry, of course, with, with two interlinking C's back to back for Catherine. But since the C's touch the line of the H for Henry, they look very much like two D's for Diane. This symbol appears frequently and must have been yet another insult to poor Catherine. Talk about having your nose rubbed in it. I'll pop a picture up on the website as it's quite hard to explain what it looks like. Anyway, following her husband's death, Catherine, now the Queen Regent to her young son, abandons the Hôtel du Tournel, which used to be situated over by the Marais and no longer exists, and it's where Henry died. She decides to build a new residence, make a fresh start, the Tuileries Palace, in the gardens just next to the Louvre. This area had been home since the 13th century to the workshops of the tile makers, the Tuileries, which give their name to the area. 
Francois I had already acquired some land here and built a small residence to his mother. Now Catherine wanted to build a new residence and lay out gardens. But what of the red man, I hear you ask? I'm getting to that. The origin of the story differs slightly, but it goes more or less like this. As well as the tile work, there are a number of other businesses, including a butcher's where the ominously named Jean l'Écorcheur, or John the Skinner, worked. Sounds like something out of Game of Thrones, doesn't it? Now, the story goes that as well as being a butcher, he'd also helped Catherine in a number of her nefarious plots to rid herself of her enemies. Catherine, as you'll see, was not much loved by the people at the time or to come, and the idea that she had a wicked henchman seems totally plausible. It was decided, however, that he knew too much and had to be done away with, so Catherine hires an assassin to go and murder him. A certain Nerville is dispatched to do the task and finds Jean in his butchers at work in the Tuileries Gardens. Nerville stabs the poor man, but he is a shoddy assassin, as it is not enough to kill him. They struggle and Jean is finally silenced, but not before it is time to cry out, Je reviendrai, I'll be back, a bit like the Terminator. Neuville hurries off to tell the Queen that the bloody task has been completed. However, he feels a horrible sensation of being followed. He turns to see the blood-soaked body of Jean following him. He thrusts his dagger one more time at him, but there's nothing there. Confused, he goes back to the scene of the crime. But mysteriously, the body of Jean has disappeared. And so the mystery, legend, fairy story, or whatever you want to call it, begins. Neuville then tells the Queen the whole story. There is something to know about Catherine. She was a great believer in astrology, fortune tellers and the occult. Another reason why it seems a natural fit to link her with the supernatural story. Interestingly, she had even consulted with Nostradamus, who apparently predicted the untimely death of her husband and her children, saying they would go on to be kings but would be outlived by herself, which of course was true, as I said, three of her sons would be king, and all three would die an untimely death. She had a close advisor and astrologer, Cosimo Ruggieri. Now, either Cosimo predicted this much-repeated anecdote, or the red man did. But either way, it's often told that he foretold that she would die near Saint-Germain. As the Louvre and the Tuileries were part of the Diocese of Saint-Germain-Luxerrois, the church which still stands today just next to the Louvre and whose unfortunate bells gave the signal for the start of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, Catherine decided to leave. She abandons her only recently built palace and builds a new home, the Hôtel de Soissons, near the Saint-Eustache Church. Nearly nothing of this residence remains today as it was demolished in 1748 and replaced by the round building of the Bourse de Commerce, the stock exchange, which is still there today. There is, however, one curious remnant, a 28-metre-high column with a spiral staircase of 140 steps leading to a viewing platform with four corners corresponding with the four directions of the compass. It was thought that Ruggieri used this tower for astrology, but, as we all know, it's impossible to avoid your fate. So when Catherine took ill while visiting Blois, a young priest was called. On the 15th of January, 1589, he gave her her last rites. Catherine asked his name. Julien de Saint-Germain. 
the literate man had got it right. Now, he disappears for a while, haunting the Tuileries Palace or doing whatever it is that he does, and reappears on the night of the 13th of May, 1610, to Henry IV. Henry IV, whose statue can still be spotted on the Pont Neuf, Paris's oldest bridge, which he himself inaugurated in 1607, was a much-loved king, despite his difficult beginnings. It was his marriage to Marguerite de Valois, Catherine's daughter, who you might know as La Reine Margot, in 1572, that gave him a legitimate claim to the throne. The original idea between his marriage was political. France had been deeply divided by the wars of religion, and the idea of marrying Henry, a Protestant, to Marguerite, a Catholic, was thought might heal this rift. Sadly, their nuptials did not result in harmony, but rather tragedy, with the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which I've already mentioned. But if you do not know the story, then here it is in a nutshell. On the night of their wedding, on the 24th of August 1572, Charles IX, the king at the time, and second of Catherine's sons to hold the position, is thought, with the advice of his mother, to have ordered the killing of the Protestants who'd come to Paris to celebrate the wedding. Allegedly saying the terrible words, kill them, so none will be left to reproach me for it. The signal for this massacre was the tolling of the bells of Saint-Germain-Loxois. Now, whether the plan was to kill the key, important Protestant leaders, it's unknown, as the whole of Paris seems to become involved, and over the next few days, some 15,000 Protestants were slaughtered. The Seine was said to run red with blood. Following this terrible event, Protestants fled to England en masse, and in a rather Dante-esque way, Charles IX, who had ordered this massacre, died of some unknown illness, sweating blood. His brother, Henry III, would then become Catherine's third and last son to become king, and the last of the Valois dynasty. He was assassinated, and on his deathbed named his brother-in-law as his successor. But Paris would not hear of it until he changed his religion. After a long battle and siege, Henry finally relents and is famously meant to have said, Paris vaut bien une messe. Paris is well worth a mass. In other words, he became Catholic after all that. Henry, as I said, became a much-loved king and achieved quite a bit in his short reign. He had great plans for Paris, of which sadly only a few remnants remain. The most famous and the most beautiful is Place des Vosges in the Marais. So, the red man appears to Henry, as I've said, but unfortunately Henry does not heed the supposed warning, because the very next day, on the 14th of May, 1610, Ravaillac, a 32-year-old who instantly had red hair, I don't know if that's of any significance, took advantage of the bad traffic which held up the king's carriage on the Rue Ferronnier, it's hard to say, isn't it, to leap in and fatally stab the king. Ravaillac was a devout Catholic, and although his motives are complicated, and it seems he may have been suffering from mental illness, it also appears that he was angry with Henry's tolerant approach to Protestants and the religious freedoms he granted them, as well as a possible upcoming conflict between France and the Catholic Habsburgs. Following this dastardly deed, Ravaillac was immediately seized for the crime of regicide, was tried and a truly horrible execution meted out for him. Paris and Parisians were not only furious that their beloved king had been killed, but they were also concerned that Ravaillac was working with other people as part of a bigger plot to send the country into civil war. Consequently, he was tortured to find out the truth. However, he maintained that he had acted alone. 
He was then taken to the Place des Grèves, today Hôtel de Ville, where, in the words of Alistair Horne from his book Seven Ages of Paris, he was scalded with burning sulphur, molten lead, burning oil and resin, his flesh then being torn by pincers. End of quote. If that was not enough, his limbs were then attached to four horses that pulled in opposite directions, and after an hour he finally died. He was then apparently set upon by the crowd, who savagely attacked his remains. They were, to say the least, not happy. Today, a discreet plaque exists on the Rue Ferronnier at number 11 to show where the assassination took place. It's not far from the Léel shopping centre. Then for about 182 years, no more is heard of the Red Man. Don't forget that the Tuileries for some time was left abandoned as the kings moved to Versailles for around 100 years, leaving our ghost to wander around alone. But then, in 1792, he once again appears. Following the storming of the Bastille, a mob arrive at Versailles and take the royal family prisoner. They're taken at first to the Tuileries Palace, and it's here that, supposedly, Marie Antoinette, alone in her room, sees in her mirror a red mist appear and the form of a man covered in blood. The next day, Louis XVI himself sees a vision of a small man dressed in red. The day after that, they are transferred from the Tuileries Palace to the Temple Prison. The Temple Prison, just because I thought you might find it interesting, was originally the medieval fortress created by the Knights Templar. Their story is so fascinating that it deserves its own episode. It was ultimately destroyed, its demolition ordered by Napoleon in 1808, as it had become a site of pilgrimage to royalists. Today, nothing remains of the fortress, but you can still visit the Square du Temple in the 3rd arrondissement, which occupies a site on which the fortress once stood. The Red Man's appearance does not end with Louis and Marie Antoinette. He is also said to have visited Napoleon Bonaparte, who, as emperor, made the Tuileries his residence. The story of the Little Red Man, who is sometimes referred to as the Little Red Man of Destiny when speaking of Napoleon, appears first to him in Egypt in 1798, quite far, we can all agree, from the Tuileries. And rather than foretelling gloom and bad tidings, he tells Napoleon that he has ten years in which to enjoy victory and triumph in European battlefields. He visits him at various stages in his many foreign campaigns, warning him not to invade Russia, advice Napoleon disastrously ignores, he even has an opinion about his marriage to Marie-Louise before finally appearing to him the night before his defeat at Waterloo. The story of the Red Man, at least when it comes to Napoleon, seems to diverge and become one of allegory rather than folklore or urban legend. Napoleon here is dealing with the devil. How else could he create such a great empire, especially a man of such inconsequential birth as Napoleon? Or so at least the British, his arch foes, would like to believe or indeed the royalists, who despised Napoleon and wanted to paint him as a despot and a dictator. And paint him is exactly what they did. Napoleon was in some ways unfortunate to live at a time when the art of political cartoons were very much in vogue in Britain. To this day, people think of him as short, a clever tactic employed by the cartoonist to diminish his stature, when in reality he was of average height. I'll put a few on the website for you. French writers in exile, such as Auguste Jean-Baptiste, also got involved. He wrote the Mémoires et Anecdotes sur la Cour de Napoléon, Memoirs and Anecdotes from the Court of Napoleon, even though he'd never actually been there, in which he was keen to describe the devilish consort of the emperor, referring to a man clothed in a red mantle, who guided Napoleon through his reign. 
but it was perhaps with the publication of Sir Walter Scott's epistolary novel of post-Napoleonic France, Paul's letter to his kinsfolk, in 1816, that the Anglo world really fell for the Napoleon and the Red Man story. He discusses in one letter how Napoleon often consorted with his red-clad advisor. Here's a quote. Tell the emperor, said he, that l'homme rouge must speak with him. He was then admitted, and they were heard to talk loudly together. As he left the apartment, he said publicly, You have rejected my advice. You will not again see me till you have bitterly repented your error. The visits of Homme Rouge were renewed on Bonaparte's return from Elba. But before he set out on his last campaign, Napoleon again offended his familiar, who took leave of him forever, giving him up to the red men of England, who became the real arbiters of his destiny. End of quote. And there you have it. As with all good versus bad stories, here the wicked devil-worshipping Napoleon against the just and righteous British. Good wins out and Napoleon is defeated. Order is restored. Some point to so-called proof that the Red Man, at least for Napoleon, existed. Notably, the memoirs of his aide-de-camp, Count General, uh, Count General Rapp, published in 1823, where he mentions Napoleon's belief in his so-called lucky star that guided him. That Napoleon was a superstitious man and had a strong belief in his own destiny is one thing, but it does seem a stretch to imply he consorted with ghosts or devils. Later, the line between the legend of the Red Man of the Tuileries and the supposed Red Consort of Napoleon are blurred, with the publication in 1831 of a book by the clairvoyant and inventor of the modern tarot deck, Mademoiselle Léormand, in which she links the stories together. The story, legend or folklore of the Red Man is intriguing. But what use are these urban myths anyway? Is it just a waste of time to tell them? If you're like me, then you do quite like a ghost story and enjoy imagining some supernatural goings-on. Of course, like the Christmas elf, I do not believe the story of the Red Man is true. I do not think a Red Man, Goblin or Ghost stalk the corridors of the Tuileries, nor do I think he gave military advice to Napoleon. But what I do find fascinating is how these sorts of stories come about and how they attach themselves to certain historical figures and why they stick. The first person of note linked to the story is Catherine de' Medici, who is allegedly at the origin of the story of the Little Red Man. She was not a loved queen, and her memory will be forever bound with the truly awful events of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. So it's unsurprising that a devilish legacy could be ascribed and believed. Secondly, it's with Napoleon rather than any of the other kings or queens that we associate this legend. It's clear that there was much fascination with Napoleon, and like him or not, he was truly a remarkable and brilliant man. The desire to demonise, fetishise, or simply cut him down to size seems evident with this story. Many myths have lingered with Napoleon because people were fascinated with him and were prepared to believe the myths that surrounded him. But we've not quite finished. What happened next to our little man? He quietens down a little bit, but nonetheless appears to the Duc de Berry just before his assassination by Louvel in 1820, then to Louis XVIII in 1824. The king's brother, who suffered from insomnia, was walking in the grounds of the Tuileries. Around midnight, as all good ghost stories happen around midnight, he sees a red glow coming from his brother's window and hurries back to the palace, fearing that there might be a fire. But there is none. The next day he tells his brother what he saw. In return, the king tells his side of the story. He'd been working late, when around midnight he sees a red glow. Looking up, he sees a man dressed in red, who disappears in the blink of an eye. Louis XVIII will die shortly after this vision. 
not really very surprising. He was in terrible health, suffering from gout and gangrene. Sometimes, however, the visits were easier to explain. In 1815, friends of Louis XVIII's niece were dining in one of the Louvre's apartments when a red devil came down the chimney, snatched a morsel from their table, and retreated from whence he had come. Upon further investigation, they found, rather than a ghost, some art students had made a hole in the wall and decided to play a trick on the unsuspecting guests, taking full advantage of the myth of the red man to cause fear and panic. Art students, it seemed, have not changed. The Red Man is noticeably quiet during the reign of Charles X, Louis-Philippe and Napoleon III. Then on the 23rd of May, 1871, the Commune, a radical revolutionary group who, following the defeat of Napoleon III at the hands of the Prussians, took over and ruled Paris from the 28th of March to the 28th of May, 1871, and burnt the Tuileries Palace to the ground. The Red Man was never seen or heard of again. Well, okay then, that's it for now, for another episode. I hope you enjoyed finding out about the Red Man of the Tuileries. I must admit, when I started the this episode, I thought it was just going to be a quick little ghost story, you know, with not much to it. But actually, I was quite surprised to find out that there was a lot more there. And it took me on some windy journeys, some unexpected places. Um, you know, Catherine de' Medici, her sons, the St. Bartholomew's day massacre the revolution it kind of covers a big old swath of history and gave me more ideas for new episodes things which i think are really interesting and worth investigating so uh, i've got a new new some new some new things i'm going to investigate and find out about um and yeah i i hope you enjoyed it too okay that's it for now bye bye